0: turns it from this lonely, confusing headache into the most fulfilling and easy project. Go to the link in my show notes to get a free trial on me. This is Denetrius Charlemagne for Female Startup Club. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's Dune here, your host and hype girl. Today, we are learning from Dee Charlemagne, who is the co-founder of Avec Drinks. Made with real fruit juice, low or no sugar, and natural botanicals, Avec's drinks are the better tasting and better for you mixes that you deserve. But before we get into it, there are so many pieces of gold in this episode. We're chatting through a lot of the money stuff. We're chatting through selling through 100,000 units in the first year in business and landing the New York Times on launch day. Grab a pen and paper because you are absolutely going to need it. This episode is so good. And by the way, there's an epic download available for free in my TikTok bio at Doon Roisin, which is D-O-O-N-E-R-O-I-S-I-N. It's the year-long marketing calendar that we use to map out our efforts, as well as a comprehensive social media calendar for all the different channels. And if you're anything like me and you're not great with documents, this is going to make your life 10 times easier as a brand owner. So go check it out. It's at DoomRachine on TikTok, D-O-O-N-E-R-O-I-S-I-N. Let's get into it. This is D for Female Startup Club.
3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Dee, hi, hello. Welcome to the Female Startup Club podcast.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited to be here and hear all the things about your amazing adventure over the last 18 months. It seems crazy from an outside point of view. (laughs)
4: <laughs> it seems crazy from an insider's point of view.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! I always love to get everyone to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about who you are and what your business actually is for those who might not know yet.
4: Cool. Well, I'm D. Demetrius is the long name, but D. Charlemagne, co-founder of Evect Drinks. We make better-for-you alcohol mixers. So, think instead of tonic water or cranberry juice or like really boring club soda. What we're solving is that compromise that you kind of see at the bar between health and taste, right? So if you want something interesting and flavorful, you really have to trade up to this really sugary cocktail. Or if you want something healthy, you're being offered a mocktail that's like a bitters and soda or a cocktail that's just like a, can I have a club soda with a splash of this and a dash of that? And you know, you're know, you trying to hack your way to this healthy drink. At EVEC, we kind of merge those two things. So all of our mixers are made with real juice, botanical spices, no like monk fruits, stevia, like skinny girl kind of stuff but are all under 20 calories and under five grams of sugar. So super simple. You just pour it in with your favorite, you know, spirit, or you have it on its own as an adult treat. And it's kind of, we're on this mission to really help people drink better and to do it, you know, better together with, you know, more thought, more helpful ingredients and kind of recognized, you know, premium spirits had taken off and non-alc spirits have even taken off and the mixer category had kind of been left behind uh, and is a little bit boring. So trying to shake things up.
1: Yeah, I love it.
0: And I so see it. And now that I read about your brain, I'm like, yeah, what happened there? Like that just got left out of the picture for a second, for a hot yeah. second. Uh, I love your, um, well, I haven't tried it, but the jalapeno blood orange. I was like, this speaks to my soul. This is yeah, what I want exactly. to drink it's on like, a daily basis. It's
4: based <laughs> off of a a spicy margarita which is like the worst my favorite drink (laughs) the worst in terms of sugar though like I feel like all workout classes are like if you have a margarita you're like discounting all of your gym goingness and you're like
0: no oh my god are you sure to Uh, me I was like it's just straight alcohol (laughs)
4: <laughs> no, margaritas are like the worst.
0: <laughs> oh man, hate that for me. Okay, let's get started on your you know beginnings on why you decided to go into this industry, how you founded the brand, where your entrepreneurial story pretty much gets started.
4: Yeah, uh, I guess I have to go way back when, but there's like lots of reasons to unpack why I'm an entrepreneur today and why it took so long, I think too. But starting with the VEC, met Alex, my co-founder at business school um, he's a Brit, but also Australian, Canadian, kind of what he calls it, like a a mutt of that world, a blend of that world. Uh, and we met at Columbia Business School on the first day. And he came over with this idea for this Better For You Mixer, having seen, you know, he was a food and beverage consultant, kind of saw the world of food and beverage change, you know, every category. If you think about Oatly, Sweet green, like Halo Top, ice cream can be healthy. Like everything was moving to health and wellness, except for the mixer space where people were like okay, I guess I'll get a club soda or a cranberry juice. Like mixers really hadn't really changed from like a health profile perspective, but also a flavor perspective. Like, you know, you see like Casamigos and Tito's, I don't know what the big brands are in Oz, but in the States at least and all this love around spirits. And then you get to the mixers and people, have, it's like, like you said, kind of the forgotten land. Really thought it was like a very simple idea. I was like, yes, America needs something like this. Uh, I spent, you know, a decade, nearly a decade in advertising before becoming an entrepreneur. So I had worked for a lot of big brands. You know, Starbucks is the one that I talk about most when I talk about a vet because it was kind of like the rest of the world knew about this thing called espresso. And like America was like, oh, we'll still settle for drip coffee. And I feel like that's how mixers are today. We got to consult for a lot of big brands and work with awesome brands like Starbucks. But it's just really feeling like I was tired of advising brands on what they should do and making PowerPoint slides and like having that kind of be my output, just like this PowerPoint advisory position versus really getting into it and building a brand. So it was such a simple idea. I wanted kind of like a hard product or a product that really bought people together. I kind of went into school with a coaching idea actually, like a life coaching idea, which we can get into separately, but really thinking about just like how do you bring different kinds of people together. Like my background is I grew up in the Bronx got to go to boarding school in New Hampshire. Then I traveled with my career, kind of going to New York. I lived in New York, Hong Kong and London, as we were talking about before, for a little while and just got to see all these different kind of cultures blend and mix. And really when I was like, always trying to get brands to just think about, you know, the world. And I kind of think the way like people our age think about the world, like very globally, very challenging, very curious, and was just tired of advising people on that. So just a really simple idea. And I think entrepreneurship on like a capital E entrepreneurship level, I guess, for me is really about, uh, you know, kind of generational wealth, if I'm honest, I know you said people don't talk about money. But for me, as a black woman, it's very much like, you know, entrepreneurship is one of those paths that help you jump a big gap. So I wrote my business school essay around, like, do I want to be a female funder or a female founder? And like, what, you know, kind of making that decision in business school was like a key one of like, okay, I don't want to be on the investing side, I actually really like operating, bringing people together. Like maybe I can do investing after I have some more experience and things like that. I love talking to investors who are former founders themselves or were founders or are founders themselves just because they get it, right? They get the journey, the operational experience. So kind of wanted to start, you know, being an operator, being a founder. Um, And the idea kind of resonated with me on a, on a level that made sense, but also like I also love planning parties and bringing different kinds of people together. So I was like, this seems like I could do it. Like it's something that a brand, a perfect (laughs) recipe. Uh, So we can get into how we got here. But that's kind of the, the not so short answer about entrepreneurship with lowercase E and entrepreneurship with a capital E, as I would say.
0: I mean, I love it. And I think the generational wealth thing is so important to talk about. And from a different lens, I grew up really poor. We didn't have any money. And for me, I was like, I don't want to be like this. Like, I want to like change my circumstances. And I really want to build a business to have the opportunity to potentially make life-changing money. And I think we should talk about this more openly because, you know, women it's, I mean, maybe it's a cliche, not a cliche, sorry, but maybe it's like a stereotype that women are more like kind of, Oh, we shouldn't talk about the money thing. Or maybe it truly is that way. But I'm like, no, we shouldn't be like ashamed to say that we want to make life-changing money and we can shout about that. It's like so important.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it's just clear, right? Like it's like, it's not that everyone's an entrepreneur just for nobility. Like people want some level of success, right? Like it's like, whether that is the amount of people you touch, the amount of power you have, the amount of money you have, like there's some amount in everything, right? Like even if it's a nonprofit, you're trying to, there's some kind of measurable KPI that you're trying to get at numbers wise. And I think the generational wealth question is still up for debate, right? Like, is this the way forward or is it like a really big risk? Then you should do something more Traditional, but, you know, everything I've read at least talks about just, like, how could you, like, with so much stacked against you generational-wise, like, it's the biggest way to leap.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, 100%. Going back to your first day of business school when you met Alex, what's the kind of journey from there? What leads you to being like, okay, yeah, let's actually join forces and start this business that you kind of have a bit
4: of a loose idea around? Yeah, so Alex will say that he spent time courting me into, like, tricking me into doing this (laughs) business. Uh, But at Columbia, there's actually very few people who are, not very few, but it's a small group of people who are interested in entrepreneurship, like, for real, for real, after business school. Like, not just going into banking or consulting or tech. Like, really, like, okay, I'm here to try and figure out how to start a business. So kind of created this, like, small entrepreneurial group where people would pitch ideas to each other back and forth, back and forth. And when I heard the idea for VEC, which had a different name then, I was like, oh, that's an interesting one. But like, I don't know Alex Bardet. Can we make this product? You know, like I've never made a product. That's also terrifying, right? To be like, my product has been PowerPoint. That's like, I've never made a product. Like, come down the line. Like, can we make a product that tastes good? And so I think we kind of focus on school work for the first, you know, kind of getting adjusted to business school. But then in the summer, I really started making recipes at home and Alex has a great palate. So it was like, I just got to taste a bunch of interesting things and then won some money from the business school to get it like a proper formulator. And once we had kind of a formula that I was like, okay, this is commercial. It tastes good. And like we were doing this before, like Spike Seltzer was like a huge thing, right? Or like in parallel with Spike Seltzer being a huge thing. We were trying to get bartenders on board and people were like, drinking's a vice. No one cares about health when it comes to drinking. That's why no one has done this before. Like it's a really silly idea. You guys are cute. Like you think people care about health and alcohol. And then White Claw Summer, as we call it here, kind of took off at the same time. And we've never really heard that since. But it was a time where it was like, even our formulator was like, you guys want less, you know, less sugar, less calories. Like you have to give something up. Like you have to do something from Concentrate or you have to do some sort of natural flavor. You have to do some sort of fake sugar. And we're like, nope, this is like, this is what we want. And so once we got to a product that I felt proud of tasting and proud of sampling kind of knew that we could build a brand around it from there. And so I guess it was like August of that year we had met in January, August of that year where it was like really a consideration. What year are
0: we talking about? 2019.
4: 2019. Yeah. So we met January, 2019 and then August, 2019 won that pitch competition and then got formulas kind of ready by January, 2020 and we we're planning oh, on wow, launching it's quick Planning on launching, well, we did a lot of at-home testing, so it wasn't like we were just going in and being like, oh, we've not tried anything.
0: No, but I still mean that it's kind of quick. You know, for me, like R&D has been this whole year, and I'm not sure if we'll finalize a product this year. I'm kind of like, gosh, when will it happen?
4: Well, I think you also have to be like, is this a good enough version, right? Like I think someone, one of our investors told us that like Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger, one of those are on like version 60 of their product and they just iterate as they go. Right. So it's uh, never, you learn a lot a taking things launch. to market. Right. And you're like, mm-hmm. all right, am I proud of this product? Mm-hmm. Are there things that I could improve? Yes. But like, let's test it, get real feedback. See, I remember, you know, the 40,000 cans we had the day after graduating virtually, we like went into making these 40,000 cans. And I was like, what are you doing? D? like, what is <laughs> Like, It felt like so many. Was that your like minimum order? 40,000? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Holy moly! I'm like scared about six
4: thousand. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was you know eight thousand skus, eight thousand times five skus. We had five, like oh, okay, right, five skus, which is also crazy. Before I get
0: onto the funding part of how were you funding this in the
4: beginning? When you say you were
0: kind of you had these non-negotiables, like you wanted fresh fruit, you wanted no concentrate, you wanted no sugar, you wanted these kinds of things. Did you? I don't know how this works as such for those ingredients. But did you still need stabilizers and things to get like a longer shelf life? Or were you having to, because of your ingredients, cut your shelf life time?
4: Yeah. So we have a year shelf life. We pasteurize everything. So I think, you know, some people would say add it so that it's two years or three, you know, like, I just think it's weird for something to sit in a jar for more than a year. I'm like, what's in Mm -hmm. there? (laughs) If it can last, (laughs) if it's fresh (laughs) and it can last for two years, like that seems super weird to me. So But I I would think like that's where the formulator kind of came in and like the food science part of it comes in where you can't just make things at home and like bottle them and pray like (laughs) you have to get things certified, lab tested, all that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of iteration to figure that out. And we also have a lot of juice in our product, right? So like our grapefruit has like 19% juice, like real juice, not like You know, from concentrate, blob, or powder, or anything. So, Mm -hmm. figuring out, you know, managing that supply chain too is something that we just like are learning, kind of as we go. And like it may be that we need to reduce some juice to get more carbonation. And like, but like I said, not being afraid to kind of iterate based on product feedback.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I feel like you are twenty steps ahead of where I am with these conversations that I'm having. Being fast. it goes fast. Carbonation. What, what is our level of carbonation? How do we make it more? Like, how do we make it last for longer in the glass? You know, all these kinds of things yeah. that I'm sure you've been through. But let's talk about that funding piece of the puzzle. You said you, your first order was 40,000 cans. Sounds like a lot because you had five SKUs. What was your approach to funding in the beginning? Um, and how much money did you need to put in before you kind of started thinking about potentially going to raise? Or, or actually, a better question is, what was your just general funding path for this brand?
4: Yeah. So like I said, the first bit of funding, I guess, was from Columbia. So there was like a summer pitch competition and we got 10K and that kind of got us to like our first formula and a little bit of branding, like being super scrappy about things. Because my background is in advertising and media, we were able to like tap into a network of freelancers rather than, you know, get sometimes (laughs) people are like, branding will cost you 200K off the bat. I'm like, that is wild. So we were able to like kind of just be scrapped. And because we had like Alex's palette and at-home recipes, it was more like making sure food safety and also getting like a next level, like our formulators made a next level formulation. So that was like the first 10K. We'd initially planned to raise more of like a traditional, I guess, like pre-seed round, like a bigger one. And then COVID happened. So we were about to go. I was flying to Brazil. I think Alex was going to Israel for break. And everything got canceled, and we were like, "Are we still starting a company in two months? Like, what's going, like, what's gonna happen, right?" Like, and I think we had different. The good part about having a co-founder is like you go through emotions at different times. So like, <laughs> I was like a week before, like I don't know if like this COVID thing is real. Alex, two weeks later, was like, "Wait," he was like, "No, it's fine." Then it's like, "It's fine." It's like we're good. Then he's like, "Oh my god, this COVID thing is real." And like we've kind of had different timings with the whole thing, but. We basically decided to do like a small friends and family raise instead. So we raised like 275 k from friends and family, mainly, mainly friends, and some from the business school. And that kind of took us through our first year, to be honest. We like didn't pay ourselves for a little while, uh, which is rough, because like for me that means freelancing, another job, right? And then raised kind of like our next round, you know, this past year, which was, you know, the 1.2 we just announced. Congrats, that was through, thanks. That was through an, really angels and then gather, you know, gather angels, Black Ambition, which is like Pharrell's foray into investing in Black and Latinx entrepreneurs and then a bunch of angels. But I would say we thought we could more go for more like traditional VCs, but I think we're just like, you know, we we're kind of in that phase where we launched something, we had enough traction, but we were not yet at the like, you know, seed levels in the pre-seed
0: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. That's so cool. For you, like when you were doing your friends and family round, and this is coming at a time that's super relevant for where I am in the journey, what were your thoughts, you and Alex, around like how much equity you should get and how much you should try and raise? And like, did you follow a certain equation or like formula to come up with like a valuation or were you just like, hey, let's just like see how much we can raise and this is the portion, this is the chunk. I'm not sure if you're happy to share, but this is kind of like the piece of equity that we're happy to give away.
4: Yeah, I think, I mean, we raised on a safe. So the valuation was like, you know, it wasn't like we were setting it. Um, But I think we just looked at comparables, to be honest. Like I think business school helps in like letting you know that like all of these valuations are kind of made up. So it's more like what the market (laughs) thinks at the time. Um, Like you could do a bunch of science and math, but it's really like, what does the market think is fair? And how do you, you know, like it's a very intimate round asking money from your friends and family. So like you also want to make sure you're not like overvaluating yourself and then mm-hmm. diluting the people who are investing in you when you have literally like most of our early investors had never tasted the product. They were just like, okay, like sounds and cool. And also you want them to
0: win too. Like they're the only people really that you're like, well, not the only, but you're like, these are the main people I want to win yeah. out of this.
4: <laughs> yeah, so I think it was just like a small enough to get us through, you know, we didn't know it was COVID, so we were like, we don't know how long this is going to last. Like, But it got us through kind of like our first, like, let's say nine months, 12 months. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's why we were just like the bare minimum to get there and just we were like super scrappy about how we spent it. Like there wasn't a lot of excess spent. Did you
0: put any kind of like minimums on how much people needed to invest? Like, uh, you know, 10K minimum, 20K minimum or anything like that? Mm-hmm accessible kind of thing, but not, yeah, minimum. Wow. Cool. That's so interesting. I love speaking to people who are, you know, you're obviously further ahead in the journey, but you're still like at a point where you really clearly remember everything, you know, you're, yeah. a year later, you can really still recall all of the details. It's so interesting. Um, thanks for sharing that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Let's talk about the launch. You launched with 40,000 units on your website or potentially with distributors. You had like press in the New York Times from day one. I feel like your press is just mind blowing everywhere. You've got so many cool things. Let's break down like how you actually, I think I actually read you did 100,000 units in your first year or something crazy Mm -hmm. like that. Let's break down your kind of launch plan and your marketing strategy.
4: Yeah, I wish I could say, I feel like everyone comes on these shows, but like so organized about exactly how it went down. (laughs) Uh, But it was like, all right, we can't, like our plan was really to be more like Red Bull, right? Like more in the streets at different festivals, partnering with cooler events, like, Not like Coachella, but like the level below, like MoMA PS1 and like the groups that are organizing parties, like, you know, big DJs and COVID happened. It was like, okay, well, now we need a really cool website. So we spent most of like our, I mean, even small, but like launch dollars on a really cool website, making sure the experience felt interesting and different. Um, And then really working on kind of like the branding and the product. Like that's where most of our focus went. I knew from having worked in media, so I worked in media for many years, but worked for Vice primarily, and then was trying to start a female-founded media company called Damn Joan, and like kind of saw the world of media blow up with Facebook blowing up, and so I was very, as a marketer, very like not anti-Facebook, but wary of just like launching on Facebook and being like, now nah, we're a D2C brand, just launch on Facebook. So we didn't actually spend any money on like paid advertising until like six to seven months in, like. All of it was like, how could we get a bunch of earned media? I was lucky to have a close girlfriend who was in restaurant PR, food and beverage PR. COVID happened and, you know, she had a little bit of excess time. And I was like, why don't you like, let us be your first client. And she's just been crushing it ever since. So like all the press accolade goes to her 100%. But I think it was important. Like the strategy we did have is that we knew we'd have to kind of tell a story around Vivek. It wouldn't be like, you know, okay, yeah, we're a new tequila and people get it, right? Like it's like we're a new mixer, you can mix it with alcohol, here's how you mix it. it's low sugar, it's low calorie. It's founded by this diverse team. We have values. it's launching on the internet. like there's so many different stories to tell. So we knew that like PR we didn't know how powerful PR could be to like drive your whole business basically the first year, but we knew that we needed to tell a story, right? like around not just how to use it, but like why we were launching why to care about this category and create some buzz and excitement around it. so even in pandemic, we launched with like the six feet apart bar, which I don't know if you saw, but we built a six feet apart table um, and <laughs> I didn't did like see a that. Did, <laughs> so cool. did like a little launch event in New York. And like when it was safe, we would do smaller kind of like activation things because like you get into the drinks business because you want to hang out with people, right? You don't really get into the drinks business again to like sit behind your computer. So it's like as much as we could, we were trying to get in front with real people and do real things.
0: Oh, my gosh. That is so cool. I love that. That's creative thinking right there. (laughs) Skills in advertising. It was fun. (laughs) That sounds so fun. And what about like now? Obviously, you said you didn't start spending on paid media until six or seven months in. But when you look at your marketing mix and the kinds of initiatives you're doing, where are you finding that you're kind of able to acquire customers at scale for a reasonable cost?
1: Yeah.
4: I mean, that's a golden question we'll have before (laughs) seed. But... I would say, honestly, like partnerships have been really successful. So like we pair well, both in the non-alcoholic space and the alcoholic space with those, you know, like the spirits of both of those worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also partnering with like, we did something with a makeup company, right? Like if you care about clean ingredients that you put on your skin, you likely care about clean ingredients in your drink. We've partnered with like moms who are like, I'm pregnant. And for the first time I have to like relook at what I'm drinking today. Right. So I think it's a for us, the first year was really figuring out, like getting tighter on who our core audience was, what occasion we were in. And now I think we're like really double downing on partnerships. I would say online, as the world opens up, is slowing down a bit um, in terms of like how easy it is to scale that channel. Like people are going out into bars and restaurants and supermarkets more. So we always knew that our business would move more wholesale. Like that was the original plan. So spending more time again with real people in real life, <laughs> doing like mixing with real things. Um, so yeah, so I think it's like, you know, more boots on the ground, sales, sampling, cans and hands, you mm-hmm. know, liquid to lips, all the fun sayings people say in beverage.
0: Oh, I uh, haven't heard that. That's so cool. I, yeah.
4: So yeah, just getting more trial. And last year, I would say was a lot of press, a lot of PR and partnerships that like made our business scalable.
0: Mm. And I loved the partnership you did. I don't know if you would call this a partnership or not, but I was reading the seed lips recipe guides that include your beverages. And I was like, yeah, that's so clever and so cool to be associated with them, to be partnering with them on those recipes. Yeah, And it makes so much sense when you see it, but it might not be the first thing you think of doing, but finding those brands that you can just, you know, partner on that kind of thing with in the in the food and beverage industry.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of, I mean, I've talked to not just, you know, beverage, like, I just think like there are people behind every brand who want to work together, right? Like you're interviewing like entrepreneurs like i'm sure there's a way to work together like everyone's trying to help everyone out because everyone knows how small everyone's budget is so it's like if we can do something together like maybe we can get a little bit of scale the thing about last summer that was like a good advantage for us was that also the big brands didn't know what to do either right so there was no like summer playbook for all these really big beverage brands they too were like oh virtual happy hours like i guess that's the way to go you know like trying to figure it out um, so it's just an interesting time to kind of see the playing field just like level a bit more.
0: Yeah, I bet. Gosh. Having been in the industry now for a couple of years, are there any sort of pitfalls or things that you're like, wow, didn't know this, needed like watch out for this kind of thing?
4: I think just the amount of money it takes to build a beverage company, people say it, but it's like astronomical, the amount of like inventory costs and just things to consider. I think, you know, now are like you need like two million dollars like. is not going to do it. Like you need like $2 million to get any kind of scale. I would say like a lot of the cowboy, cowgirl nature of it, right? Like a lot of it, it's still like you show up with your product and you're like, are you going to buy this? Like There's still a little bit of this like, (laughs) it's not yet fully digital. I don't know how to describe it. There's just a vibe that's like, you go to a distributor, you're kinda of like networking, hustling, like it's like very cowboy, cowgirl feeling like sometimes. It's very like um,
0: hand-to-hand combat. Yeah.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it hand-to-hand <laughs> combat. Like in comparison to like, you know, other professional fields, like it feels way more tactile tactical and tactile in that way. And then I would just say like learning from other beverage founders. Like I feel like I, you know, at the beginning I was very like, a lot of beverage founders are like very like Closed. Like, no one wants to share formula. It's like, there's not a lot of, like, IP protection. But I feel like now maybe it's just because I know people better. Like, it feels like everyone's down to help or down to share, like, tips if you just ask, right? Mm-hmm. Versus mm-hmm. even if they're, like, in your competitive set. Like, everyone's just like, we're all in this crazy industry. Like, we get it. Like, we had <laughs> cans that. that were, like, exploding with in the winter last year. Like, the big blizzards and, <laughs> like... Like oh in God. the middle, like there were like blizzards in Texas last year, right? Which no one knew what to do it. But like we learned from another beverage founder, like, okay, you got to send out your stuff if it's going across country on Monday. So it's not sitting in the truck over the weekend. It's like someone has figured it out. So I think there's just been more um, community building online, probably more so in like CPG and food and beverage than there were in the past because mm-hmm. more people were behind, like not just running around stores because we couldn't. Um, so I just think it's interesting. A lot of those like communities I feel like have formed over COVID. Mm
0: hmm yeah wow gosh that's a that's a crazy one cans exploding <laughs> in <laughs> yes. good old texas jesus
4: yeah all kinds this, of things i was like i remember being like what's a 3pl like someone i remember our first calls people were like 3pl i was like 3pl all right let me google that like let me google our first <laughs> order that new york times article everything was fulfilled like out of my apartment like out of the warehouse in, in brooklyn like we did not have a 3pl set up we did not we just launched and we're oh like, oh my gosh we won't get that. Like it won't be that crazy. And then my neighbors are like, "What is going on?" In here? <laughs> like,
0: They're like, happening? "Is she doing drugs? So was, yeah. Like what's <laughs> what going is on? Thinking, what is she doing? What is she
4: selling?" <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: What was the impact of that New York Times article? Are you able to share like numbers around like what does something like that drive?
4: Um, I think it really depends. We've had a lot of pressets, and I would say some are like nothing, right? And some, like, really drive. Like, obviously, New York Times is, like, a huge boost, right? You get in the ten plus 10,000-plus 10, range, I would say. From that, it's hard to, like, attribute exactly. I read this article. I came to your website. But, like, some, some posts are like that. And then others are, like, you know, more of, like, an awareness play. Like, you hear people be like, oh, you're legit. I saw you in here, and now you're legit to me when I see you in store. So mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to just be like, you know, a lot of people be like, what's the conversion from this exact affiliate link? And it's like... Some of it is just like, again, that storytelling nature of like, it is a new-ish category, right? So there needs to just be a little bit more storytelling around it. Mm
1: -hmm. But yeah,
4: food and wine, like who knows how much sales that drove, like probably a lot, but also like just having that credibility when you walk into a restaurant, you're like, food and wine, wrote about it. This is like, you know, or like a distributor, like we didn't have, we were self-distributing. So Alex, my co-founder was driving around in this like 1995 Chevy van that if anyone lives in Williamsburg in Brooklyn would have seen and been like, what is this thing? But like it was like a 1995 Chevy van that we bought for like a thousand bucks off of Craigslist, Facebook marketplace. And that's how things are being distributed. And like he's six five, he can drive that van. I was like, I can't drive this thing anymore. Like it's a monster. But like he was fulfilling (laughs) orders, right? He was fulfilling orders on the ground. I was packing boxes in my apartment. It was like not, uh, you know, fully like, oh, we know what a 3PL is and we have distribution set up. It was just like, again, the hand-to-hand combat is the nicer term I'll use now.
0: It's so that like meme or that kind of thing of like what people think entrepreneurship is like and like the glamour of being an entrepreneur versus what it's actually like. Yeah, (laughs) My gosh. Yeah, that's so cool. Wow. Holy moly. My next question is a two-part question. What is the best and worst advice? you've ever received about like entrepreneurship about building this company in general
4: um I would say the worst advice probably sometimes is like just trust your gut right like people are always like trust your gut and I'm like sometimes you don't know like sometimes you (laughs) need to check your gut right sometimes you need to ask around and like just be a bit more humble about like what you don't know like most times your gut's right but I would say like Sometimes you just like fly by the seat, like you're the entrepreneur, you're, you're the visionary, right? Like a lot of that narrative I think can get dangerous because you're not being open to kind of like new ideas and new ideals and new ways of going about it, especially when you don't know the industry that well. Starting out, so I would say like, yes, go with your gut, like you you can feel it, but also like make sure that gut is really just like experience kind of, and like your experience will tell you that. Best advice I probably got was just like, understand your, and now this is like what, when people are like, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs? I'm like, understand your personal relationship with money before you start a business or while you're doing a business. Just because I do think like, you know, some people grow up and money is like a really icky thing for rich people. Some people grow up and it's like, money's a really powerful thing and like debt is totally fine. And like, they under like you have to kind of understand where you come at money from like a personal perspective, I think before you start considering it for business because I do think a lot of I'll speak for myself but like you know taking on any debt taking on any risk even asking my friends and family for money I was like oh my god if I lose their money like people are gonna hate me like you know I just think understanding your relationship with money and another female founder recommended this book which sounds really cheesy but it's like you're a badass with money it's it's one it's the same like you're a badass book but I just found it really helpful advice to like be open and honest about like wherever you know whether it's a positive or negative or like don't judge yourself whatever kind of relationship you have but I think you have to understand it to properly like manage a business's books and like not be afraid like there are times when I open like our model and I'm like oh even though I went to business school I'm like oh it's like opening your bank account after a big weekend out you're like I don't really want to know what's going on in there uh (laughs) and you're like why is that and unpacking a lot of why that is Yeah. And just understanding that you're kind of like in a different game than a lot of like, I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, really successful, have accomplished a lot before becoming entrepreneurs. And like, you're now kind of in a different game than a lot of your peers, right? Like, I'm 32. A lot of my friends are like, you know, entering kind of like VP level or like getting bigger jobs in the like corporate ladder. And it's like, easy sometimes to be like oh man I should have just stayed there and done that like I would have been crushing it in this way you know they're crushing it and it's just hard you just have to be like I'm in a of different course. game
0: you're like I would be making hundreds of thousands of
1: dollars yeah <laughs> <per> exactly year. <laughs> for a
4: year I would have like, a salary <laughs> yeah and like people are able to afford things that you weren't in your 20s and you're like I'm back to where I was at 23 financially so yeah I just think thinking about it a bit differently and understanding how you think about it before you go in mm,
0: that is great advice thank you so much for sharing at the end of every episode, we ask a series of six quick questions, some of which okay. we might have covered, some we might not have, but I ask them all the same at the end. So question number one, what's your why? Why are you doing what you're doing?
4: For the generation before me and the generation after me. Maybe sometimes for myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> please put that in there. <laughs> question number two is what do you think has been the number one marketing moment that made the business pop?
4: Mm. PR, could PR be one moment, but PR.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like for you, it, it looks from the outsider perspective and from what you've said that PR is a huge moment for you ongoing. So cool. Question number three is where do you hang out to get smarter? What are you reading or listening to or subscribing to that's worth mentioning?
4: Mm, I'm a good podcast Googler, if that makes sense. I'm always like podcasts on email marketing, podcasts on money troubles podcast on blank. So I can't give you a specific one, but I always kind of look for that. And then, yeah, I like reading and hearing other entrepreneurs journeys. So listening to podcasts like yours, or how I built this or reading shoe dog, like just hearing how other people have done it, like more of a personal story.
0: I need to read Shoe Dog. It's everyone recommends this book. Like so many people have recommended on the show. And I'm always like, yeah, I'm going to read that next. And then it just like slips my mind and I haven't read it yet. I need to get on that ASAP. Question number four is How do you win the day? What are your AM or PM rituals and habits that keep you feeling happy, successful, and motivated?
4: I wake up really early. <laughs> like, how early? Just, what are we talking? Like 5.30. 30. Um, Yeah, it's tough, 5.30 or 6.30. But I feel like when I don't wake up that early, I feel like the day escapes me, right? Like I don't have that moment to be like, it's D and her day and like kind of, you know, not really have like bubble around a bit. Like I work out in the morning, like just like I need that hour in the morning, I think before I'm just like, okay, email. And I've started meditating before bed, like just doing like a five minute. I've got an Apple Watch to like track my sleep, my heart rate when I sleep. But it really calms things down, like knowing the information, right? You're like, oh, I feel really stressed because my heartbeat when I sleep is lower. So I started doing just like a five-minute wind-down thing on Calm, and that's been really helpful.
0: Wow. I didn't know that the Apple Watch could check your heartbeat. Maybe that's something really stupid to say, but that sounds really interesting to monitor your sleep.
4: Yeah, so um, not to distract from the question, but there's like HRV, which is like heart rate variability, uh, and it measures the beats I think it's like you know your heart rate, how it varies like over the course of a minute. And if it's lower, it means you're more stressed. And like it's basically like an under like a thing that a lot of people don't track, but there's just like sleep watch app that does track it. And because I have a great partner, he was like, I think something's going on in your sleep. Like your heart, you're breathing weird. Like your heart rates, like not in a scary way. just like something happens when you sleep, and so. I tried his Apple Watch for like a week and now I like religiously just like, look, like how much did I sleep? Like sleep is really important, even though mm-hmm. I don't get a lot of it, like the quality of it. Like if mm-hmm. I sleep for four good hours with that calm app versus seven, like I've been drinking too much or I'm really stressed hours, like I can see the difference in that. It's like a quantitative measure. Anyways, it's like a really weird, it makes me feel a little like quantified self, like a little robotic, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's helpful data. <laughs>
0: I think I'm a really terrible sleeper and I have like weird breathing stuff when I sleep as well. And, but of course, like, I'm like, how, unless you go and do the full sleep test, you know, thing, yeah. which just seems like a whole other deal. I'm like, how on earth are you meant to like figure it out? But I'm going to look into this for myself.
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> People you. also like the whoop, like W. Oh yeah, Joel. I've heard of People that one. People really like that for sleeping, but I haven't, it just tracks it on its own without like the app. It's more accurate, I think.
0: It's kind of ugly, though. I wish that makes improved design choices for people who aren't athletes, (laughs) including myself. Question number five is what would you do if you were given $1,000 of no strings attached grant money in the business? And it's obviously not a lot of money, but to show your most important spend of a dollar.
1: Hmm.
4: Right now, I'd give it to sampling, to be honest, more sampling, trying to make more ambassadors out there with the back. I'd give it to that program.
0: Nice. And last question, how do you deal with failure? What's your mindset and approach when things don't go
4: to plan? Not well, Uh, but uh, I think I just try and like act, which is probably like not the best response to failure, just to be like, how can I fix it as quickly as possible? And like avoid, I have a very bad relationship with conflict, to be honest. Like I try, like, even though I'm like very straightforward, I like hate actual conflict. So I think I just act really fast. I'm like, okay, what do I need to do to solve it? And sometimes I think the best way to deal with failure is just to like recognize it, have it be like, I failed, and here's what I'm going to do differently next time, rather than try and fix it in the moment. So I'm trying to be better at like, okay, it was a failure. Like It's not perfect. And I think part of a lot of failure, like thoughts are tied to like money for me. So it's like trying to separate those two things out has been helpful to be like, this is the money spheres talking. And this is like an actual failure, you know, like trying yeah. to separate those two things.
0: Trying to think it through and disconnect those dots. It's a tough one yeah. to do that though. I feel easier said
4: yeah. than done. 100%. I'm like, and everyone's lying if they say they figure it out, but maybe if you know <laughs> yeah. someone refer, refer me to said Past founder that you've been interviewed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Ah, Dee, this was so cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing so deeply about Avec and what you guys are up to. I, as I said before, I'm just in awe of what you're doing. I really look up to you for what you've been building in such a short amount of time, truly. It's really cool to see.
4: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking good questions. Hopefully helpful. So helpful.
0: Hey, it's June here.